Hello and welcome to Baka Banter, a podcast about all things anime and otaku culture. My name is Ravi and I'm joined by the lad who's lost out to another gacha waifu trap, Yanatan. Do you want to say hi, Yanni? You know, before we start recording, I always try to guess what you're going to do for the intro. And I just knew it was going to be about this. I 100% knew that it was going to be about this. I mean, how many things are changing day to day in your life yeah. that I have to latch onto here? I know. Anyways, it's fucking true. You know, I always thought I wouldn't really be a person to ever get into gacha games, like quite seriously. I'd always see other people playing them and getting sucked into them and getting addicted. And I was like... That could never be me. I'm not even that big of a gamer. Why would I ever get it? Turns out that they are pretty much the perfect kind of game for my personality. <laughs> so yeah, I started playing Honkai. I thought I was going to play it casually. And then I realized that's not of possible. Of course you weren't going to play it casually. <laughs> I warned you about that from fucking day zero. <laughs> because I'm a fucking Literally, everyone I'm a in his life was like, don't, don't do this. Yanni, don't do this, please. You already spend way too much time on Genshin. Don't do this. And it's even worse because there are no husbandos in Honkai. It's, it's literally it's, just all waifus. It's just waifus. Yeah. Anyways, so I'm in Gacha Hell again, which is fine for now because Genshin's on a pretty big delay, so I don't have that much to do. But then I realized that once, you know, in like three or four weeks when it comes back online, when hopefully the COVID situation in China and specifically in Shanghai gets better, I will just have two gacha games. <laughs> so oh, I worry about you. It's it's a problem, but at I mean, least it's a good opportunity for me to send you more art. So. That's true. The art's great. I'm actually really enjoying both the games and I'm really enjoying getting into Honkai and the story and a lot of the actual game mechanics. And for everybody listening, I do not spend very much. I spend very responsibly, mostly free to play on games like this. Please, if you play gacha games, only spend within your means. But yeah, it's 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 a problem. It's a huge time sink. Yeah, you say this, but then you were also like, man, if Asuka was back in this game, I would <laughs> wail the shit out of her. I would. I also did like did not realize going in, I don't know why, that the story of Hawkeye is literally just Ava. Like it's actually just Evangelia, which I mean it should have been obvious from a lot of the art and other stuff, but anyways. What do I want to cover anime-wise besides gacha games? I guess the biggest thing news-wise that happened is that we got the first preview trailer for season three of Mob Psycho coming out this fall. Super, super hyped. I know I already said earlier on the podcast that Jujutsu Kaisen is my favorite currently airing shonen. And then you were like, oh, Yanni, but what about JoJo's? And I was like, well, <laughs> fuck. And then this preview for Mob reminded me, wait, is that actually my favorite shonen? So the point is, I don't have a favorite shonen that's currently airing because a lot of them are good. But I forgot how fucking amazing season two of Mob especially was. And it's going to be great to get another season of that in the fall and especially if it's airing at the same time as the second core for spy family and chainsaw man it's going to be a super exciting season i think that's very true yeah this fall is going to be amazing i think bleach is also coming out true. I'm looking forward to that one yeah i hope for all the bleach fans that it's good we'll see <laughs> so on today's episode yanni and i are going to do a deep dive on a show that's special to both of us for its emotional resonance march comes in like a lion We'll be giving some background on Three Gatsu, as it's otherwise known, breaking down its prominent themes, and spending some time talking about the characters that make it the masterpiece that it is. So let's get into it. So Yanni, Anya or Momo? 
Momo, 100%. So Holy shit. Close. That was, I, I thought it'd be like, huh, let me think no, about that no. for a second. That was instantaneous response. <laughs> Absolutely not. Also, I want to mention that usually you let the intro breathe a little bit more. Like you give me some time to like think about if I have any other anime related news, anything else I want to say. But you know, you know how many notes I have prepped for this episode that you were like, we got to cut this down as much as possible. The show notes for Ray, <laughs> just just to let you know, is over a page and a half long. Yeah. And Yanni texted me the night before being like, <laughs> hey, man, don't look at the chat. And I was like, why? Immediately open it. Fuck off, Yanni. <laughs> In his defense, Studio Shaft is his like favorite studio. And this is one of his favorite shows from that studio. Yeah. So I'll give it to you this time. Yeah, Three Gatsu is one of my absolute favorite pieces of fiction ever and so once i started prepping this episode and outlining it and actually writing stuff down it became very very hard to stop but anyways i understand you streamlining other parts of the podcast that we usually (laughs) spend more time on so maybe let me outline how we're going to do this episode uh, and then we'll start diving into some of the different things so if you haven't been with us for a deep dive before welcome Usually we start out by giving our general thoughts on the show. So we'll do that in a second. Uh, Then we go through some background, talking about the production of the anime and the manga that inspired it or whatever the source material is. Then we cover broadly some themes of the series to basically give a launching off point for the rest of the discussion. And then we typically do a plot breakdown. Uh, We're going to do that a little bit differently, focusing more on characters. And when we get to that section, we'll talk about why we organized it that way, specifically for Trigatsu. So general thoughts on uh, Trigatsu, Arch comes in like a lion, Sengatsu no lion, whatever the fuck you want to call it. Hit me with it. I feel like the show is just hard to talk about because there's so much there. Like this is one of the few shows where you look at an element of it and you're like, is that really the point of Three Gatsu? Like even Shogi, right? Shogi, when we talk about themes, is a major theme, I think, in the show. And is the show about Shogi? Is the show about Ray? Is the show about food or family? Or what is it about? It's about so many different things. And that's why when I started off the introduction, I talked about emotional resonance. This is a show that I feel like so many people can relate to on a personal level because there's so many different aspects to relate to. In terms of emotion, it really is a roller coaster. I went into this having no idea what to expect, thinking it purely was a show about shogi, and it smacks you in the face in literally the first scene with Ray in this black and white, dark visual talking about depression and how lonely he is. And you're like, whoa, 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 what the <laughs> fuck am I in here watching? And then you immediately transition to a nice warm scene under a kotatsu with the family. It's so hard to sum up what Three Gatsu really is, but I think all of its emotional moments hit me very, very hard. Yeah, I completely agree. I want to say that Robbie and I sometimes do not agree on anime. Sometimes, (laughs) yeah. Sometimes, as an understatement, let's say. I think we have obviously, in other episodes of the podcast that we've done, focused on things that we like or points of disagreement because that makes for good content, obviously. And we try to cover the shows that we like, but this is definitely in a special place as one of the unique shows that I think we both think supremely, supremely high of. There are very few shows, maybe no other ones, that both of us have as a 10. I don't think I can think of another one. And there are things that we both like, Mm -hmm. but one of us might like more than the other. It might resonate more with one of us. There are things that we completely disagree on. This is one of the things that we had to do an episode on because we both think it's a masterpiece, like what you said in the opening. 
So a bit more on my sort of general thoughts with Trigatsu. Very similarly to you, I didn't really know exactly what it was about. And I think you said it really well just now in the opening that it is kind of hard to pinpoint what Trigatsu is specifically about. But I think that's what makes it such a good show is that it really feels lived in. Like there is no necessarily central focus because these are all different things that happen to these different characters and you're just basically living their lives with definitely focuses on on different arcs and on different emotional aspects of their lives but it it does feel very lived in and i'll talk more about that uh, a little bit later my girlfriend has actually been watching through Godsu for the first time now so i have not watched every episode on a rewatch but i've definitely been peek it over the shoulder, seeing what's happening and also talking to her more about it, hearing her reactions. And I loved the show when I first watched it. And I think that seeing it on a rewatch, I am now appreciating it on a level where I think while I love Monogatari and everybody knows that and there are a lot of anime that I really like, if you ask me what the best anime of all time is, I think I would say this. Wow, that's high praise. And I... Don't even think it'd be that hard of a decision for me. Like, I think it's pretty peak fiction in general and specifically within anime. So we'll we'll get it. We'll get into why I think throughout this episode. The, the last thing I want to say is that have you ever had the experience of something, some scene or some quote from a piece of fiction that you hear and then just resonates with you and sticks with you? And maybe you're not sure why or maybe you are sure why, but that you just remember like super distinctly. There are some themes within anime that definitely resonate very strongly with me, and, and family is definitely one of those, which is part of why Rigatsu is, is a 10 for me. But there are a few other shows, like, for example, scenes from Violet Evergarden. The reason I bring this up is because I have had those experiences for sure, but I have so many of them in relationship to Rigatsu that have just stuck with me in, like, really impactful ways. I'll give one example, which is... At some point, I think it's like mid season one. Obviously, spoilers for Three Gatsu, by the way. Like, if you're here and you haven't watched it, like, do that first. Um, but at some point in the middle of season one, Ray is basically monologuing about how his time at the Kawamoto family's house feels like a warm katatsu, meaning that he feels so warm and welcome inside of it and it makes it really really hard to leave but when he does leave he realizes how cold life is outside of the katatsu and that's a very very simple message very simple imagery and metaphor it's not exactly like it's i think it's nuanced but it's not exactly subtle but for some reason that imagery has just like stuck with me for the rest of my life ever since i watched that mm -hmm. and it, it's hard to explain specifically why that scene obviously i relate to stories about family but i've never been in a position like ray's necessarily has been but i think that's what's so beautiful about a show like three gatsu is that it gives you all of these kind of pretty insightful moments about the human condition that you can just latch onto and i have a ton of those and that's one of the reasons it's so special for me so we'll start with the background as a sort of general thing to to say we are probably not going to be completely comprehensive so if there are things about the show that you feel like we miss talking about or you want to hear our opinions on definitely reach out to us on social media or anywhere else and we'd love to talk more about the show 
So some of the background. So Thrigatsu features the life of Rei Kiriyama, who is an introvert and professional shogi player who gradually develops his play simultaneously to his relationships with other people. The title of the series comes from the proverb, March comes in like a lion and goes out like a lamb, signifying that when March starts, it's still winter, but by the end of the month, that has been replaced by calmer spring weather. I think it's pretty clear how that relates to the series' psychologically driven themes and how personal struggle leads to growth. It's interesting that the author for this put an English proverb as the title. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I have no idea how that translates in Japanese or if there's a similar proverb in Japanese. I'm not exactly sure, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Probably should have looked into that before we did for <laughs> But anyways, so speaking of the source material, March Has Been Like a Lion is written by Chika Umino and began serializing in Haku Sencha's Seinen magazine, Young Animal, in 2007. Uh, it's scheduled to actually finally have an English release done by Denpa, which is coming out this summer, uh, supposedly, which I will... Got to hold you back. I will 100% be picking that up like the second that it is available. <laughs> Do you think you would uh, give the manga a try or are you staying away from the manga world I don't still? think so. Honestly, I, I'm so deep into the anime at this point that I struggle finding time to even watch anime. I, I don't think I could put in time for another light novel or manga or any other piece of fiction. Fair enough. So there's also a little sad, like, oh, <laughs> fair enough. I'll just let you know what happens when I read the source of two. <laughs> so there's also a spin-off manga, which I personally did not know about, which is about a 27-year-old uh, Takanori Jinguji. He's the chairman of the Japanese uh, Shogi Association in the main series, and spin-off manga focuses uh, on him as he's younger. The manga itself has won a ton of awards, including the Manga Taisho, the Kadansha Manga Award, and the Grand Prix of Japan Media Arts Festival. So very well regarded in, in the manga space. The anime adaptation was done at Studio Shaft, as you mentioned, and directed by Akiyuki Shimbo and Kenjiro Okada. It aired from 2016 to 2018 across two seasons with 22 episodes each. We know how good Shinbo is. We've talked a lot about this on the podcast because we did a whole Madoka episode. We, well, we, I have talked about Monogatari a decent amount. Uh, and I think pairing- Literally zero days. <laughs> it's been zero days. <laughs> I have to mention it whenever I can. <laughs> <laughs> and I think pairing Shinbo's direction with Chika Umino's writing and the main strengths of the manga being in the psychological depiction of its characters feels like pretty much the perfect pairing. Couldn't have really made it any more symbiotic than that. Did you have any thoughts about why the author approached Studio Shaft to actually do this adaptation? So that's a good question. I'm not super well versed in anime production and like who goes to who. And I assume there's a production committee that is able to decide on projects and then give them out to studios. So someone in a production committee somewhere made the very, very smart decision to see the source material and say, can we pair that with Shinbo's direction or just generally the work that Shaft has done? And that's was kind of in an era where Shaft was still producing really, really good stuff pretty regularly. Now the mm -hmm. studio is kind of in shambles, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we're at the point where we've talked about so many of Shaft's famous shows that it's going to be hard to do one of our top five episodes on Studio Shaft. What is it about Studio Shaft that really resonates with you that you enjoy? Because you do enjoy so many of its works. I think the main thing for me is that it is... It completely, at least most of the stuff that Shaft does is completely unique in the anime space. I would kind of compare it to being a big fan of Masaki Yuasa, for example. Like, if you want 
the Masaki Yuasa experience, you can only get it by watching his shows. There's nobody that has the same directing style, the same sort of out there visual eye and direction that he has. And I feel very similarly about Shinbo and then more broadly, a lot of Shaft's works. They really do so many interesting eye-catching things with the animation that I just don't think you get the same level of creativity in the art style and in the adaptation that you do other places. Um, so I think it's just completely unique, really. All right, I wanted to focus a little bit on Chika Umino, who's the mangaka for Rigatsu. Her pen name actually comes from her favorite location, uh, which is the name of an amusement park by the sea in Japan. And this made a lot of sense to me because I've seen Huddy and Clover. And there is a very prominently featured Ferris wheel amusement park setting by the sea. And I was like, oh yeah, well that fucking makes sense. <laughs> Some of her main influences as a writer were books she read as a child. So like Anne of Green Gables, which is where her depiction of sort of unusual family constellations comes from. And a bunch of prominent shoujo manga artists. These names probably won't mean anything to you, but for example, Fusako Kuramochi and Moto Hagio. Uh, and if you look up their works, at least from the art style, you can see sort of where the, the derivative comes from. Her other award-winning series, which I just mentioned, is Honey and Clover, which started serializing in 2000 and has a 36-episode anime adaptation done by JC Staff, which aired from 2005 to 2006. I do want to do an aside on Honey and Clover. <laughs> I will probably not get a chance to talk about Honey and Clover again, but I think it fits in in a lot of interesting ways with Trigatsu, but it is very symbolic of Chika Umino's writing style. I don't like Honey and Clover as much as Trigatsu, if that wasn't obvious. And specifically, there is a very controversial ending that I personally do not like, and I, you know, you should go watch the series. I think it's worthwhile, but just be warned <laughs> that, that there is an ending that you might not like. But I think Huddy and Clover has a very similar feel to Thrigatsu while exploring different themes in a different setting. So Honey and Clover follows a group of friends who are all in different years at an art college. There are five of them. They have a teacher who has a very close relationship with all of them and kind of guides them throughout the struggles they are going through in life. And they all have very distinct personalities and challenges that they have to overcome. And while I think as a viewer, you're probably not going to relate to all of them or really understand all of their struggles. I think you definitely can probably find one that you can relate to. And it is kind of rare to see a series that is set in college. We just don't really see that in anime with sort of the focus on uh, high school. I think if you enjoyed Trigatsu and you're looking for something that's going to give you a similar exploratory slice of life feel, I could definitely recommend it because I think that's really what Chika Umino is good at. She's really good at telling character-driven stories that feel like real life. And she taps into how these characters live and, and how they think via internal monologues, via nuanced dialogue, very, very effective imagery and metaphor. And this is what I was mentioning at the outset, but the characters and the settings in Honey and Clover and in Trigatsu similarly feel very lived in. The problems are relatable for someone who might be dealing with something similar. And we get snapshots into how characters struggle in their everyday relationships and in their everyday lives. I actually remember reading a quote that Chiku Umino gave where people were asking sort of about the future of Trigatsu and how much of Rei's story she was going to tell. And she was very clear that you know, she had a vision for like the set amount of years she wanted to tell the story of Rey, and she was not really that concerned with what happens after or what happens before. 
she really wanted to focus in on this X amount of years and tell a story that talks about his life and the people in his life. And that's it. I think that's a very sort of poignant way to structure your storytelling. You haven't seen Honey and Clover, actually, right? I meant to ask. No, I haven't. Any plans of watching it? Mm, there's a lot of isekai to get through. No, but there, <laughs> there are a lot of other romance shows I, I definitely want to get through. We'll get there eventually. My backlog is long. So that's a no. <laughs> For everybody listening, that's a fucking no. That's like when I ask you, hey, you're going to watch One Piece soon? And you're like, yeah, I'll definitely watch this at some point. Yanni, it's like over a thousand episodes now. I started watching Haikyuu. Is that not enough for you? Why am I never enough for you? Yeah, actually, Yanni is like messaging me about Haikyuu being like, why is this guy not benched? Why is he still playing here? (laughs) Why is the outside not playing middle blocker? I'm like, dude, that's not how it works at all. (laughs) That's like me telling you, like, why doesn't fucking the striker play goalie on some plays just for tactics? (laughs) I mean, it's very evident that I don't know shit about volleyball, but Hinata should be benched. That's my Haikyuu hot take. (laughs) (laughs) all right so let's transition to getting into the themes of the series which will be sort of a basis for the discussions we'll have later on about the show in a little bit more detail all right yeah so there's quite a few themes in three gatsu to talk about here and all of them as i said at the beginning are ones that i could relate to not necessarily with specifics like shogi, but for the relationships that they draw out and the feelings that they evoke. So I just said the first one, the first major theme in the show, and that's shogi. I find that when I recommend March Comes in like a line to people, what do you actually say when you recommend this show? I don't really talk about shogi at all. Okay. So I do think it's a center point of the show. I might mention that it is kind of centered around shogi but i usually say it is a slice of life anime that focuses on you know insightful aspects of the human condition that is something like that is probably what i would say and i would really not focus on shogi that's the most fucking broad recommendation (laughs) i've ever you want some insight into the human condition go watch march comes in like a lion hey you like art house anime So what I inevitably end up saying is that this is a show about Shogi, because I think at its heart, that is true. But every time I say that, there's this you know little voice in the back of my head saying that that's not quite right, because while Shogi is an integral part of Three Gatsu, the story is not about Shogi, but rather the relationship that Rei has with it. The game, which, if you don't know, can basically be thought of as Japanese chess, is a vehicle to develop Ray's character. It's at the root of so many facets of his life, from his emotional state to the way he approaches both familial and friendly relationships. So let's break down the use of Shogi in Trigatsu and how it defines Ray as a character. I think the easiest thing to say about the show is that Ray's relationship with Shogi is complicated. It's less of a calling or a profession and more of a life support system for him. Shogi was the vehicle that Rei initially used to get close to his biological father, and after the tragic death of his family, it was a lifeline that he clung to to find a home with Masachika and Kyoko. And this is important because Rei doesn't love Shogi. To anyone who's watched the show, you can tell that his relationship with Shogi is super ambivalent. He's not passionate about it in a way that characters like Nikaido or other members of the Shogi Association are, but he needs it. He needs it to build relationships in his early life. 
And Shoki defines Rei's relationships with both Masachika and Kyoko, who are his adoptive father and adoptive sister. Because of his talent at Shogi, Rei finds another father figure in Masachika, but because of Rei's talent and Masachika's flaws, Rei's presence also causes Kyoko to feel like he's stealing her father from her. And the guilt that Rei feels from Kyoko's outbursts and the trajectory of her life after basically being pushed aside by her father is the seed of his doubts and regrets. And doubt and regret is an integral part of Rey's personality. We see that in the imagery throughout the show from the very first second. The guilt that Rey feels is at the root of why he's depressed, why he chose to leave his adoptive home, why it's so hard for him to initially get close with the Kawamotos. But in the same way that Shogi has caused Rei so much anguish, it's also been the mechanism that allows him to mature and form meaningful bonds. In, in the same way that the game allowed him to get close to the father figures in his life, it also introduces him to friends like Nikaido and seeing the emotional relationship that other members of the Sogi Association have with the sport allows Rei to begin to address his emotional attachments to Shogi and realize the happiness that can be found by investing in his profession and in his relationships. What did you think about Shogi in the show? Yeah, I think you said it super well. It is a centerpiece of the show. And I was going to talk more about this specifically when we focused on Ray, but I think we can totally talk about it now. I think not only does Shogi give Ray a lifeline early in his childhood to relate to his adoptive father and his adoptive family more broadly, it's actually one of the only ways he can spend time even with his real dad before his dad passes away. So even before tragedy hits and he kind of needs to hold on to it, it's already early on pretty much the only thing that he's really good at and that he gets praised for. And the little time that he gets to spend with his dad is usually centered around Shogi. And I think you also said it really well that as the series progresses, his relationship with Shogi definitely improves. You know, at first we see Nikaido as kind of this annoying character that is like his self-proclaimed rival and we're like why why is this guy the way that he is but he does form a really strong friendship with Rei as you know you get further into the series similarly with Shimada as a mentor figure and the rest of the shogi workshop that Rei is a part of you also see that in sort of the mirror type of relationship he has with the mage in Soya and how the mage himself is isolated in similar ways that Rei has been throughout his life so ultimately it is sort of his primary source of human connection that he really sorely lacks otherwise and i actually think this is something that people often kind of miss about the show like you said it that it's obvious that Ray has a complicated relationship with Shogi, but there are countless video essays and other works that talk about how Ray is just good at Shogi and don't really focus on the fact that he explicitly in season one talks about how much he hates it, but he needs it. It's his only yeah. way to be financially independent. It's his only way to do something that he is good at and live on his own. And I love how that changes throughout the show. And I think while we're talking about Shogi, we should also mention that it provides us glimpses into a bunch of other side characters, which we'll get into as we get later on into the episode. But not only is it a lifeline and a way to read into Rei's emotional condition, it's the same for Shimada, for Dekaido, for all the rest of the side characters that we meet through Shogi. So it is a very, very important aspect of the show. 
I did want to ask you, what did you think? So you asked me what I thought of the shogi, and I interpreted that as sort of broadly how it's used in the context of the show. What did you think about the actual shogi? Like, what did you, what did you think while you were watching the matches, while they like popped up with the kittens to like explain a little bit of the rules of shogi to you, etc. Fucking hated. <laughs> The fucking song. That stupid motherfucking song made me want to punch myself in the face. Other than that, the actual shogi reminded me of the same feel that I get when I'm watching a sports anime. Like, the the visuals in... I was about to say One Piece. I don't know why I'm thinking of One Piece right now. Can you stop? The visuals in Three Gatsu... It's just a numbering thing. The, the visuals in Three Gatsu are by far one of its strongest aspects. Totally. And the way it uses them through the shogi matches is actually done masterfully. Like, showing how... The emotional state of Ray is changing as he's either winning or losing in a match, as he's feeling pressured. The visuals that we see are done really well. I don't understand how to play Shogi. I don't know what the fucking silver general or golden <laughs> shit are. Like, I, I don't understand what those are. But it's just really cool to see a player moving the pieces through it. And then you're seeing the strategy going on in their own minds. You still get the same tension and suspense that you get from a good sports anime. And I really appreciated that aspect of the Shogi being played on screen. Yeah, I agree, actually. I often hear people fall on two extremes with this, where they'll either say like, oh, I wish more of the shogi had been explained so I knew what was going on. Or I hear people say, the shogi was super boring and I turned my brain off every time it came on screen and I wish they would just fucking get back to Momo being cute. And I think it's actually the perfect balance because like you said, the show's not really about shogi. And so I think the show explains to you enough so that you get like some super, super vague understanding of what's going on. And then the rest is just really good imagery and visuals that let you understand how the people playing the matches are feeling and how the matches are progressing as they go along. I think of, you know, the burnt field example in season two, which has insane visuals. I think of the first time Ray is playing Shimada and he's so focused on revenge and his upcoming matchup with the fucking Kyoko's married adultering boyfriend. What the fuck's his name? Goto that he doesn't even look up at Shimada. And then the first time he finally looks up at him, he's just sort of like washed away with these waves of like Shimada's basically calm demeanor playing in his shogi matches. And that imagery is all wonderful. So I actually think the balance of shogi between explanation and, and imagery is, is pretty perfect, but I know a lot of people have differing opinions on this. Yeah, I mean, I think it should be explicitly clear from the fact that I do not consider this a sports anime. No. That there's enough shogi in there for me to be happy in the context of all the other relationship building and emotional insight that we need for the actual show to progress, right? You give me a lot of shit often for saying that ping pong is a sports anime or Tihayafer is a sports anime just because they are either about a card game or they're, you know, a slightly less traditional <laughs> take on ping pong. And we meme about that all the time. Those are actually sports anime. This is actually not a sports anime. <laughs> like, it doesn't run like uh, one we at all. Get into a, I thought we were going to get into a heated argument here. No, no, we uh, actually agree. We actually agree. <laughs> okay. Well, I've mentioned this scene two or three times already. But the opening scene, the imagery in the opening scene of the entire show is a clear indication that Ray suffers from depression. I think from that opening scene, we can tell that there's something going on with Ray's mental state and that he is possible that he may have a mental illness. And that 
sense is threaded through the entirety of the show. And that leads us to our second theme, which is depression. It's this imagery and the subtle way it gives us a glimpse into Ray's state of mind that make the show one of the best depictions of depression that I have ever seen in media. Completely agree. Given the tragedy and the guilt and the loneliness that Ray experienced in his childhood, it's no wonder that he would be suffering from depression. But the show never actually comes out to explicitly state that this is what Ray is going through. At no point in the show does Ray say, I'm depressed, or does another character say, hey, Ray, you may be depressed. We have to intuit that from the visuals and from the actual behavior that Ray has. And therefore, Studio Shaft gives us an incredibly vivid representation of the symptoms of depression rather than just telling us from how getting out of bed becomes the most monumental of tasks to the intense feeling of drowning under the pressure of everyday life and work. The motif that actually sticks out to me the most is the stark contrast in color palettes between those moments when Ray is alone versus when he's within the Kawamoto household. During the former, like in Ray's apartment, the color palette is often dark and dulled and monotonous. But during the latter, when he's with the Kawamotos, the colors are bright, saturated, and varied, giving us a window into Ray's emotional state that's simultaneously subtle, but tells us a lot about what he's experiencing. I think Ray's behavior reinforces the visuals in the way that he clings to Shogi to help carry him from one day to the next, the way that he sinks into despair whether or not he wins, the way that he paradoxically chooses to stay home alone rather than share the warmth of the Kotatsu with the Kamamotos, all of these moments come together into what I think is a very striking representation of mental health illness. Conversely, though, March Comes In Like a Lion is also a beautiful representation of how to deal with depression and to overcome it. Just like Ray's sadness and loneliness is a major theme of the show, so is the transformative nature of positive relationships. Friends like the Kawamotos and Nikaido are what help Ray to survive and deal with his depression. And that's one aspect of why I like this show so much. Because even though it throws you into Ray's bleak life, even though it starts off with a dark descent into depression, it lifts you up as Ray is himself lifted up through the warmth and love that he receives. Yeah, you pretty much said everything I wanted to say about depression. I think it really is brilliant, and I think it's one of the main selling points of the series. It's just so realistic in the way it's portrayed, and I think that's what makes it so good. I think this is partly due to the writing. Like you mentioned, Ray very rarely or maybe never explicitly says he's sad or depressed, and the smaller details are what highlight his mental state. For example, you mentioned a few, but his apartment being basically empty, him eating instant ramen every night when he's not at the Kawamoto's, his difficulty really making friends besides the few that he starts to make as the series progresses. The other major part of why this is so good, other than the writing, is the adaptation, which you already did a really good job of breaking down. But holy fuck, Shimbo knocked this out of the fucking park. It is mm -hmm. so good. And we talked, or I mentioned earlier, scenes that have stuck with me. And some of them are from this theme specifically. So thinking specifically about Ray crying in his sleep while he's at the Kawamoto's and Hida pulls the blanket over him. Or you mentioned the very first scene, the black and white showcasing of his inner turmoil. That's just genius imagery. Like, it, it really, really is. 
It seems like the art style is one of the greatest controversies surrounding March Comes In Like a Lion. I know we both really like the art style. Do you understand the argument that the art style is not for everyone or is something that some people may not appreciate? So if you were to criticize the imagery and like the creative aspects of the adaptational art style, I would say you're fucking insane. (laughs) If you're just going (laughs) to tell me that like Chika Umino's base art style is not your favorite, that I can kind of understand. I really like it, but I do think there's like an element of uncanny valley for some people with like the way she draws facial expressions and specifically, you know, those, she just has this very characteristic, like thin line, smile and eyes that like, I can't really describe, but if you've seen this or Honey and Clover, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I think for some people that is like slightly off-putting. She also does like the lines through the eyes, like the striations. And I know for some people that can be a little unsettling because in other anime, that's also used as the character, like completely out of it, like zoned out or just like dead. And you're like, (laughs) I can understand in some of the warmest moments of Three Gatsu when Ray is surrounded by the Kawamotos and it's like the cutest scene and all of them have the striations in the eyes. I'm like, <laughs> all right, I get it. I get it. Like, I understand what's going on here and like, I really like it, but I can understand why yeah. some people may be a little put off by it. Yeah. And then the last thing I wanted to mention about the depression, which I'm just reiterating what you're saying is that you might think that the series is dark because of the way it starts out and because of everything we've talked about in terms of depression just being a very heavy topic. But this is balanced so well by the show actually just being funny and kind of leading pretty heavily into comedy, but also the brightness of the Kawamotos, which is what you highlighted, and the ultimate message that you can get better and that your depression isn't just going to completely go away, but your world can actually just get brighter in the way that you highlighted, even though you're never fully healed. And I wanted to mention that this also is reflected in the openings, which we were talking before this, and you said you didn't remember any of the openings for the show. But the openings do get progressively happier and more upbeat and warmer as we are tracking Ray's depression. I think that's just very nicely done as well. I think if you go online and you look up, March comes in like a lion with the keyword depression attached to it, it's kind of astounding how many people have watched the show and talked about not only how much they relate to the scenes of depression and how it's a great representation of the mental illness, but also how March Comes in Like a Lion for some people has actually helped to relieve them of some of the symptoms or help to bring them into a better state of mind. And I think for any piece of media, when people come out and say that this is something that actually helps me with my mental illness, that's just an incredibly, incredibly high praise for a show. Yeah. So the third theme I want to talk about are relationships, relationships between family, between friends and between rivals, which are at the heart of March Comes In Like a Lion. We've talked a bit already about how the relationships Ray has with his dad and his adoptive family have shaped him into the character we meet at the outset of the show, and how the Kawamotos and friends like Nikaido help heal his emotional trauma. And from these discussions, and those we're actually going to have in a little bit about the individual characters, I think it's easy to appreciate that March Comes In Like a Lion shows the impact that positive and negative relationships have on one state of mind in a truly masterful way. We talk about character development a lot on the podcast. Both of us have said it's the core of some of the reviews that we create or when we watch anime. But 
I think it's rare to see relationships used to transform a character's state of mind as effectively as was done here. I think my favorite example was from the second season. So when I talk about Mars Comes in Like a Lion, this is one of the few shows that I started watching after I created my Mal page and started actually rating things on Mal. And I remember in our Mal roast, you gave me shit for rating like everything within a series, no matter how many seasons there were, the same value. <laughs> and so I watched March Comes in Like a Lion, I think right after that. And I was like, all right, let me actually be critical of the different seasons. Season one, I actually rated a nine, but season two, I rated a 10. And there was one specific arc within season two that really struck me on a personal level. And it was the arc where Hina is getting bullied. That example, when Hina, who's the middle of the three Kawamoto sisters, is getting bullied, is deeply personal for me. But also seeing how Ray's relationship with Hina developed through these episodes and how his desire to help her also caused him to grow was basically peak emotion for me. That was 10 out of 10 emotion. I remember watching every single episode of that being like, holy shit, I want to protect this girl with every fiber of my being. <laughs> my God, I love Hina. And I love the way that the show and the writing progressed her character. It showed her as a very strong character. And the way that Ray is trying to help her but just can't figure out how to help her and is struggling through that and at the same time realizing how he struggles to form relationships with other people and he doesn't know how to help her. And in the process of going through that turmoil, that emotional turmoil progresses and grows as a person, that was basically 10 out of 10 material for me. Yeah. Episode four of season two is the one where the bullying arc starts. And we'll talk a lot more about the bullying arc. I think we dive specifically in on Hina, but that episode where she first starts getting bullied and she goes to the river to cry and Ray runs after her and basically is thinking about how I can help her, but also that she is this light that saved me when I had no one else and now I want to do the same for her. That's like instant cry material. <laughs> like we talked about this with, with Violet Evergarden episode 10 or Clanad After Story episode, I think it's like 18 or something like that. But this is one of those for me where I get to rewatch that episode of that scene and I'm going to fucking cry because that really, really, really hits hard. What I love most about the bullying arc and we'll dive into it is that it is utterly realistic in everybody's response from the teachers being negligent to the way the social dynamics at the school exist to Hina crying to Ray wanting to help her but not knowing what to do to Akari wanting to be a better, stronger mother figure for Hina, but not knowing exactly how, from the grandfather asserting that Hina did the right thing by standing up for her friend. All of these things are just a perfect depiction of how complicated bullying situations can be and how many moving parts there are. And it was just such a nuanced, realistic depiction of uh, bullying. I think that's the reason why it resonates so strongly with people. Yeah. So the fourth theme I wanted to talk about was water. One of the most visual themes in Three Gatsu is the use of water to convey emotion. 
Water imagery pervades this show. It it represents the feeling of immense pressure, of drowning when Ray is in a depressive state. It sweeps Ray away when he's overwhelmed during a shogi match. It conveys a sense of loneliness and isolation when Ray stands alone on the bridge over the river. In these senses, water is a negative force dragging Ray deeper into his solitude. But in other senses, the imagery we see are associated with happier moments in his life. The days spent befriending Nikaido through Shogi in their childhood. I still remember that scene where they're sitting, I think it was on the roof, and Nikaido is just getting flustered but also getting overheated and he's just profusely sweating. And Ray is just sitting there calmly, he's just not sweating at all. And he's like... Here's some water. <laughs> and, and, and like those moments when you really see Ray unintentionally forming friendships are, are really beautiful to witness. The bath at the Kawamoto's house is another one. The bath is kind of like an oasis already within this island of happiness. March Comes In Like a Lion has stellar imagery at baseline, but the way that water is used to represent emotion just adds to that. Yeah, this is definitely something that I notice a lot more on a rewatch. And so that is one of those things that struck me. And you gave a lot of good examples. I already mentioned the one of the waves washing over Ray as he looks up at Shimada. And it's just one very, very strong aspect of the imagery in the show that's used super effectively. The last theme I wanted to discuss is actually one of my favorites and one that brought a feeling of warmth and comfort to a sometimes heavy show, oftentimes heavy show. And that's food. I don't think it's overly reductive to say that Ray's relationship with the Kawamoto sisters revolves to a large degree around food. Many of the scenes within the Kawamotos, at least initially, occur when they invite Ray over for dinner. Once we meet their grandfather, we're thrown into a subplot of designing sweets for his sweet shop. And whereas the tumultuous emotions and relationships within March Comes Like a Lion are what made me start watching the show... It's these scenes of everyday life and sharing a meal that really incentivize me to stick with it. Across cultures, food is an integral part of strong relationships. Sharing a meal is the process by which relationships are formed and is a sign of trust and caring. And this is something that the Kawamoto sisters desperately want to convey to Ray. They want to provide a space for him to call home and to feel safe and cared for. And food is the means by which Akari and Hina actually do that. Food is used as a tool for communication elsewhere in the show as well, such as when Hina wants to convey her feelings to her crush by making him a bento. I know this is a trope that is so overused in anime, like in every ecchi show we have ever (laughs) fucking seen in our lives. We have- Don't say we. Like 20 girls that are like vying for the main character. We. It's going to be we soon. They're all vying to give our fucking dance motherfucking MC this bento box that no one gives a shit about. But for the first time in March Comes In Like a Lion, I got a glimpse into the thought and the preparation that actually went into that bento. From Makari saving up money for the ingredients to the emotional release that Hida has when she's unable to deliver it. The scene when Ray is standing over the trash can with Hina holding the bento that she's about to throw out, I was like, fuck, <laughs> this hit me. This is like one of the scenes yeah. where Ray is giving back. Again, he doesn't know what to do, how to emotionally relate, and he's trying to maintain distance because of all of the regret he has of intervening in his 
previously adopted family life. But this is one of the first scenes we're seeing in season one. I think it's season one, episode four, where he really helps Hina out, really helps her to go from this state where she is very sad. She has been unable to deliver this gift that she put so much thought and care into. And she comes back in the scene where she is just sobbing from failing to give this bento box to her crush. And Ray is just standing there like, I don't know what to do. And Akari is like, okay, I got this. Like that scene really hit me. I love food. I love the social aspects of food. To see it used so effectively in Three Gatsu to heal Ray and to develop the relationships was one of my favorite parts of this show. It's one of my favorites as well. And I think it's deeply personal for me. I mean, you were talking about how the bullying arc was deeply personal for you. If there was one thing my family did growing up, it was eat dinner together every single night. And I would often have soccer practice and back-to-back trainings or whatever and i would have to do homework and i'd get back at like 9 p.m like we were eating at 9 p.m then like we were just going to eat at the time where everybody could eat together and my family just generally has a big focus on okay what are we going to make what should we cook together what should we eat together what kind of new recipes do we want to try it's a big way in which we connect and really just show love for each other and so i really really resonated with all of the food scenes in the show from just watching Akari cook and put out all this amazing looking food on the table, despite the poverty really that they live in, whether it's Hina wanting to take over her grandfather's sweets shop and thinking about what sweets she can come up with herself, whether it's inviting Ray in for dinner or really welcoming anyone in for dinner and not asking any questions, whether it's Ray actually being able to repay them and actually bring them food like groceries uh once he's making more money all those aspects that just absolutely love there's this one hilarious scene which i'm sure you remember which is i think after ray i don't remember which like shogi match it is because again the shogi's not fucking important here but he wins like some important shogi match and takes the entire kawamoto family out to eat and they're hyped because they, they do not get to eat out <laughs> very often and they are like freaking out over the menu and like what should what should i get like what are you gonna get like can we order this it's like oh but i want that and then they just like ordered this insanely huge buffet because (laughs) hina and akari just get each other riled up to the point where they want to order everything on the menu and ray's sitting there like i'm just gonna cover this one like fuck (laughs) and it's all those scenes that i just absolutely love I agree. I mean, that scene really stuck out to me, too. It's one of my favorite scenes in the show. Food is something that I think about constantly. I think about how much all of our relationships, whether it be friends, whether it be family, whether it be loved ones, all of our relationships revolve so deeply around food. When we go on dates, we go on dates to eat food. When we want to spend time with our significant other, you and I think about time spent cooking or going out for a nice meal or something like that, right? It's, it's, it's so it really sounded personal. to me like you were implying that we were each other's significant others. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are we not? <laughs> when I think about where I want to take Ravi on a date or when I want to make him a nice dinner. <laughs> hey, man, that's what I think about constantly. <laughs> But it's, it's just something that I think deeply resonates with me. Your story about how your family 
used to spend time or make time to eat dinner together. It's something that my family did as well. And my dad made this such a tenet of our household that no matter what time I get home, even nowadays, I get home at 11 p.m. and you know, I'll walk in the door and I'll be like, all right, you guys have eaten, right? It's 11 o'clock. And they're like, no, we waited to eat with you. It's 11 p.m. My dad uh, would ironically sometimes say when he got annoyed, are we living to eat or are we eating to live? And, you know, unambiguously now, I, I definitely live to eat. <laughs> Gotta agree with that. All right, so we're gonna move on from talking about themes to doing our breakdown of the show a little bit more in detail. And we will certainly touch on the themes that we already talked about and more of them that exist through all the different characters in the show. So typically for our deep dive episodes, we do a discussion either by episode or by arc, depending on how long the anime is. For Three Gatsu, this just, to me, didn't feel right when I started outlining the episode. I think, first of all, there are just too many episodes. Like there's 44 episodes of content. That's a lot to break down into specific arcs. And while these specific arcs do exist and some of them are distinct, you know, talking about Hina's bullying arc or a few of the other ones, the series isn't really defined by those arcs. It's defined by the character-driven slice-of-life feel where we just get to spend time with characters drifting in and out of each other's lives. So we figured that instead of talking about episodes or arcs, we're just going to actually talk about the characters since that's the focus of the show. And of course, we'll highlight the episodes and the moments that resonated with us that showcase their struggles and their personal growth and that connect to the themes of the show. So let's start with Ray. Where else would we fucking start? Who's that? <laughs> uh, I, I actually had a bullet point on <laughs> answering that question, basically. <laughs> we like to be comprehensive. So Ray is the protagonist of the series, Shock, whose progression we follow and is a teenage professional shogi player who's widely lauded in the community as the fifth shogi player to become a professional in middle school. He lives on his own, using his salary combined with his life savings, trying to juggle official matches and high school duties. Kind of. You know, some of the cognitive dissonance I have on this on this podcast is, am I explaining this to you or am I explaining this to listeners? Because <laughs> you're sitting here explaining to me who Ray is after we've talked for like 40 minutes about who Ray is. It's going to make more sense when we do it for other characters, but we just are going to try to be comprehensive. So we have already actually talked a lot about Ray in the themes. And I think we'll highlight some of the same points that we've already gone through. You mentioned that I had like over a page of notes on Ray, but congratulations, we've already actually hit on a lot of the points. So maybe this won't be as long. <laughs> so I think chronologically, the place to start is with Ray's traumatic childhood, which you already outlined for us. I think one thing I wanted to add on to that and highlight is an example of the way in which the series uses really simple but effective imagery and metaphor. And that's the cuckoo metaphor, which you probably remember, but if you don't know, cuckoos in general are birds that are known for what's called brood parasitism, uh, which just means that they lay their eggs in the nests of other birds. And so there's basically a nature documentary playing in Ray's adoptive household in a flashback when he's a kid, explaining this concept. And it's embedded in the same episode where Ray is starting to feel like his adoptive father pays a lot of attention to him and is starting to neglect his other children. And specifically in how difficult, I would say, 
the father's relationship is with Kyoko, his adoptive sister, and how difficult Kyoko's relationship is with Rei because he is usurping her as the father's favorite because he's just better than her uh, at Shogi, which stellar parenting, as we've already said. And I love that kind of simple imagery. It really keys you in on what the point is. It works through Rei actually thinking, oh, I'm just like that cuckoo, and then later making the decision to leave the household when he's able to. This is just such a frustrating sequence of events to actually watch. It's just, it's so sad. It's sad because we talk a lot about childhood innocence, and I think Ray is a good depiction of that in the way that he's just trying to form a relationship with his first biological father, and the only relationship he seems to be able to form is through Shogi, which is why he gets good at it. But then after his father dies, the way that he has to basically choose, do I go to a foster home or do I play shogi so that I can live in this adoptive home? That's a choice you should never have to have to make as a child. And then on top of that, the way that his adoptive father uses shogi to essentially create a wedge between him and his sister is just is is terrible. Clearly, his adoptive father is getting Ray to play shogi in this weird fantasy of, I wish I could have done this when I were younger, right? Yeah, or having the prestige of like raising the next shogi mastermind, basically. And then seeing the impact that has on his other children is like, this is clearly a very abusive relationship or an emotionally manipulative relationship, which Ray probably doesn't understand and can't cope with as a child, but he has to deal with the consequences of later, especially with his sister Kyoko, who I think is a central character within the show and we'll talk about. Totally. Moving on from Ray's first familial life, I wanted to also highlight his actual source of positive familial relationships, and that's with the Kawamoto's. We already talked about how the Kawamoto's provide Rei's main source of human connection outside of Shogi, and one that is definitely in stark contrast to his actual adoptive family pretty much in every way possible. The series makes that very clear. One thing that I really liked is that their home is a complete safe space where he's welcome anytime, and they're pretty much kept completely separate from his shogi life initially because his relationship with shogi is so bad and as that improves it gets sort of blended i think one really funny example of that is it's not until pretty far into season one that any of them even find out that he's a professional player they just pretty much think that he's playing shogi at his high school club or something and then they just see him on tv and they're like wait (laughs) what? Like, you're this good at Shogi? What? And it really is, again, very effective that the structure of the story keeps those things separate until his relationship with Shogi starts to improve and he can merge the two a little bit more. Yeah, you're completely right that the relationship he has with Shogi is so complicated and and it evolves so much over the entirety of the show. The way that Shogi is used within the show to undermine all of his initial relationships, but then to build all of his future relationships is just done so well. I don't think it had to be Shogi. It didn't have to be Shogi. No. It could have been literally most other sports. I mean, Shogi, in a sense, is serene and very thought-provoking and allows time for the studio to use its visuals in a nice way. But you think he could have been playing fucking like golf out here? Like <laughs> He could have had the same thing, you know? <laughs> Probably, yeah. So I also think 
his relationship with the Kawamoto's generally is very representative of Chika's Chika Umino's writing strengths, which I've already talked about. If you remember, there's this set of episodes in season one where Ray stays away from the Kawamoto household right after Momo tells him good luck in his match, which is like one of the cutest things ever. That's, I think, right before the tournament where he thinks he'll be able to go up against Goto. So he feels like he has to focus on Shogi and be really basically focused on studying and prepping for this revenge match that he has in his head. And so he just stays away from for like multiple episodes from their house. And when I was watching this, I definitely remember being like, can he fucking, can he just go back to, to the Kawamoto's? Like, I'm trying to see more of Hina and Akari and Momo. Like, I want to spend time with them. But when he finally does decide that he wants to go back, there's this beautiful scene where Hina's like, oh, maybe we should invite Ray over for dinner. And she calls him and he's like already outside, like walking up to their door. And that's what I'm talking about when I say that the series feels lived in. It is so realistic to have people come and go in your actual life like there are very few people that you know unless you make a fucking podcast with them you're not going to see them every day you know <laughs> it's it's very unrealistic to have those sort of constant relationships but call me i'm gonna be right <laughs> outside your door <laughs> i fucking Yanni, hope so. i'm already here <laughs> <laughs> i've got i've got dinner ready baby <laughs> time but for a date <laughs> but that's what i absolutely love is that realistic aspect of you know, me feeling like, oh, I want to see the Kawamoto's again. And Ray probably feels like that too, but it's just not realistic for him to always necessarily be there. And it's just good writing. It's just very, very good writing. Okay, I had a bunch of stuff about depression written down, but I think we covered it already. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't think there's a lot more uh, to say there. And then I also had some other stuff about Shogi, but I also think we covered that. So I'm pretty happy to move on unless you think there's more about Ray that uh, we should say. No, I mean, I think each of the other characters that we're going to see relate deeply to Ray. So as the central character of the show, he's going to be brought up over and over. Totally. All right. So we've talked a lot about the Kawaboto sisters and their grandpa, which I feel like I have to mention as part of the family unit, but it's mostly about the sisters. So let's transition to talking about them one by one. So we'll start with Akari. She is the eldest of the sisters who's had to take on a much more motherly role after their father abandoned them and their mother and grandmother both died. Her defining characteristic is that she has this very strong tendency and urge to help other people and beings in need. So this includes the cats that they own, which were strays that she picked up. This includes Ray himself. The reason that he is introduced to the Kawamoto's at all is because she finds him out late at night absolutely fucking hammered because he went drinking with some of the shogi guys and clearly this guy has never drank in his fucking life so he's absolutely puking rainbows and she's like, okay, I gotta take him home and take care of him and and make sure she's okay. What was your read on Akari as a character? That scene where Akari sees Nikaido and she immediately falls in love with him because he's like a little rotund and finds him so cute, I think is exactly telling of Akari's personality. She is, as you said, she's a motherly figure. She cares very deeply about her family and, and she has to live with her family 
in isolation because she's been abandoned by so many other people. But even in spite of that, she is so loving and she cares so much about other people besides herself, even when she can't afford food for her own table. And I think that that says so much about her personality and about the whole Kawamoto household. I'm laughing because you brought up the scene where Nikaido is introduced to the sisters and Akari's reaction is obviously like, he's so cute and round, I want to feed him, right? And that's just very indicative of her personality. <laughs> but in that same scene, it is also when Momo fucking mistakes him for like Totoro <laughs> or Botoro <laughs> as they talk about it in the show. And that shit is so fucking funny. But I love how Nikaido just like leans into it and he's like, this is a compliment. And then like basically serves as an introductory point for all the girls to learn a little bit about Shogi. It's, it's very, very cute and very well done. One of the scenes where we actually get a little development for Akari is during the uh, bullying arc when we actually see her trying to cope with the fact that she is not their mother, but she has to be their mother, right? And she doesn't know. You know, when we were kids, we we thought adults had that shit figured out. <laughs> they like, we were like, don't. hey, man, they got, they, they got this thing on lock. Like, they know everything going on. And then now that, like, we're relatively adult, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, <laughs> right? So, like... How How is Akari supposed to raise two sisters, one who's a literal infant alone with the help of their grandfather who has a store? It's incredibly difficult. And for most of the series, we don't see an indication that she is really struggling besides financially. It's really in that emotional arc where Hina is getting bullied that Akari realizes she doesn't know what to do. Like, how does she behave with these other moms that are going to steamroll her in these parent-teacher conferences? Yeah. And, and that's just, that was such a good development arc for the entire Kawamoto household, but Akari specifically. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. I think undoubtedly Hina is the central character of the Kawamoto family, and she gets by far the most development specifically in season two and that makes a lot of sense she has the closest relationship with ray but the main thing about akari besides the traits that we mentioned earlier is what you just talked about is that she for the most part seems like she has it figured out and she's putting these amazing meals on the table she has the right advice to give to hina about asking her crush out she seems like she's just absolutely killing this role that she's definitely too young to have had to take on but we do start to see some of those cracks in the bullying arc that you're mentioning where she doesn't know exactly what to do and what the right things to say are and she feels like she's failing as a mother despite all of the other things that she's already excelling at and i thought that was very insightful even though it is a pretty short expansion of her character i guess the other thing to note about her is that like everybody wants to date this girl like every single person that sees her that's like an older character of the show is like man what do i gotta do to marry a car <laughs> and it's like yeah Dude, I, I get that I, what do I gotta do to marry this i woman? know i know i, I get it bro <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's transition to talking about hina who is the middle sister whose positive attitude is definitely one of the catalysts for Ray to work on his emotional state and his depression more generally. How bright she usually is makes the moments in which that waiver hit so incredibly hard. So for example, in season one, we haven't talked about this scene actually, but we start to learn how hard she's taking the death of her mother and grandmother when she calls out to her mom at the bridge. That's preceded by her sort of thinking if she is handling the death in an appropriate way and 
in, I guess, the same emotional way that Akari and Momo have been handling it. But then we see that, no, it actually is affecting her super deeply in a scene that is really, really emotional. And then in season two, where she's the focus of you know, what we've already said is probably the best bullying arc that we have ever seen. I think those two moments together in which we see Hina really struggle are such a good contrast to how cheerful she usually is. And it makes those arcs hit so hard. Yeah, I think similar to Akari, after the death of their mother and grandmother, I- I'm sure Hina felt that she had to step up to be a older figure, especially for Momo, right? She really had to become independent quickly so that Akari could focus on keeping them alive and making sure that they have food on the table and everything else. And therefore, she didn't really have time to grieve, which is why those moments where she does grieve are so heartfelt. And especially because a lot of the series is from the perspective of Rei. We don't know what goes on behind the scenes in the Kawamoto household. So the scenes where Hina feels comfortable being emotional in front of Ray hit even harder because sure she could be emotional within the household, but now she's being emotional in front of someone who should otherwise be a stranger, someone that they just picked up off of the street, right? It's very evocative how in such a short time, even within a few episodes, the relationship between Ray and the Kaomo sisters has deepened so quickly. And I think Hina is a large part of that. I'm gonna say this right here. Ray X Hina shipping that shit. Let's go. <laughs> Uh, I can't comment on that for reasons that I also can't comment on. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've been a little spoiled on manga content, so I can't say things. Ooh, I got to <laughs> publicly apologize for spoiling. Uh... <laughs> Ravi out here. Ravi out here. Okay, I can't tell this full story because it will spoil things for other people. But yeah, Ravi has sent me some just straight manga panels from <laughs> later on in the Kaguya manga for no fucking reason. <laughs> That's not true. Don't I say thought the this reason. Was a Don't... Kaguya spinoff. I, I'm not saying the reason. I'm saying spinoff. I thought it was a Kaguya spinoff. And I was like, hey, man, like, look at the, look at these panels out here. Like, this, this looks, looks pretty cool. And then you're like, you sure this is a spinoff? And I was like, I think so. It says it in the bottom, and and then you looked it up. Why did you look it up? I told you not to look it up. I told Yanni, Yanni, d- don't think about it. Don't look it up. Five minutes later, he's like, nah, it's real. Motherfucker, why? <laughs> Just letting me know that Robbie spoiled one of my favorite series for me. Um, <laughs> it's cool. Don't worry about it. Um, I think the point you were making about... He says that while frowning. <laughs> I've got the Chika Umino art style frown. (laughs) But what I did want to reiterate that you just said that I think is a really good point is uh, Hina herself also feeling like she has to be an older figure, especially for Momo. That's the whole reason she's running out to the bridge to cry about her mom or about the bullying that is taking place because she doesn't want to show all of those emotions necessarily in front of Momo. And we definitely see that permeate a little bit more during the bullying arc where it's affecting her too much to not show it in her own home but i thought that was that was a good point that you made i wanted to zoom in a tiny bit on the bullying arc we did talk quite a bit about it but the general premise is that hina's childhood friend chiha is being bullied and basically no one wants to get involved 
to avoid becoming the next target of the bullying. Hina, of course, being the best girl that she is, stands up for her friend who eventually is bullied so hard that she has to move schools and, of course, then becomes a target of the bullying herself. And I already mentioned how realistic this arc is written, but I think that really is the best part of it. Hina's teacher is basically negligent as the bullying continues to escalate. It's just maddening. Fuck this teacher. It's absolutely maddening, but it's I realistic. I wanted to fucking reach into the screen and punch this teacher. <laughs> Same, but I think that's exactly the point. Like, that is how a lot of teachers that are not necessarily trained to deal with these situations, that's how they act. And it makes it super frustrating, but that's because it's so realistic and relatable. And the other characters also react in ways that make a lot of sense. We talked about Akari. We talked about the, the grandfather. We talked about Ray. We didn't mention Takahashi, who's uh, Hina's crush, but he actually reacts also very in character by actually wielding some of his social clout to help. Like he can actually kind of do something about the situation because he has a decent amount of awe kind of around him being the stud baseball player. And he's like, I got your back, Hina. Takahashi, great little side character. <laughs> this boy's coming in late, though. He's 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 coming in a little bit late, but I also love his dynamic with Ray, by the way, where Ray's like, why do I have to meet this guy? I'm uncomfortable. But he's immediately like simping over his shogi abilities because his, gra <laughs> his grandpa or his dad or something is like a, a big shogi fan. It's it's really great. Yeah. I did want to mention also the ending of the bullying arc. I also really liked where eventually the bullying dies down and the scene where Hina eventually goes out to visit her friend that was bullied, uh, Chiho, in the new town that she's moved to was just really, really heartwarming. It was like, yes, Hina, you like stuck to it. You did the right thing. And your friend seems to be doing well. That really like hit a very, a very nice emotional spot, I thought. It's kind of sad. March Comes in Like a Lion really just shows how poorly other anime broach this topic yeah like it's, it really does stand out it really yeah. stands out as like an <laughs> exemplar of talking about yeah. something that's so universally felt across so many schools and childhood experiences like almost every single person i have ever talked to has said that bullying occurred in their school at some time or another yeah. and given that given how it's such a shared childhood experience it's frustrating to see how well march comes in like a lion did it and it's, it's a weird statement to say yeah. but it's like I felt it so acutely when I watched this and was like this is so reminiscent of my childhood experience of so many other people's childhood experiences yeah it really gives you the perspective of like damn if I have to watch another poorly executed bullying arc nothing will ever live up to this <laughs> that's unfortunately true it's it's a, definitely a hard topic along with depression and some of the other things that the show handles it's, it's a hard topic to do a good job of depicting, but when you don't do it well, it, it really is frustrating. It's actually not that hard, man. We both saw Bell. <laughs> it's done really well. Fuck. <laughs> uh, Bell, aka, and that's how the gang solved domestic abuse. <laughs> God, I hate that movie. Uh, okay, uh, so <laughs> let's move on to the last two members of the Kamoto household, who are Momo and Sameji, who are who's the grandfather. I don't have a ton to say about these two. Momo's the youngest sister who's just insanely cute and provides a lot of comic relief uh, for the show. I literally wrote in here, the Anya before Anya existed. So, <laughs> so I had that ready. 
And so Veggie is the grandfather who supports the family financially by running the sweet shop and providing occasional guidance when needed. We mentioned how there's the one scene where he encourages Hina that she's doing the right thing by standing up for a friend in the bullying arc. And so that's sort of the way in which he can provide a little bit more stability. Yeah, the other scene where he's like, listen, Hina, choose whatever school you want to go to. I'll make sure to work. I'll make sure to fund it. Yeah. That scene really hit me. I mean, yeah. that that's another scene that I relate to so strongly because we've talked about this before, but neither of our families was very wealthy. And both of our parents, I think, tried hard to shield us from the fact that we didn't have all the money in the world. Yeah. And seeing that represented in this way with Semeji actually telling Hina, listen, we'll make it work. I'll make it work. Even if I have to work more hours, you don't have to worry about it. You need to focus on your education is something that really resonated with me. Yeah, I had a little section here talking about what I think are the last sort of three big ideas that surround the entire family, not just one of the characters, which is food, which we already talked about, poverty, which you just mentioned, and loss, which we also have talked quite a bit about them dealing with trauma. And I think that there are so many scenes where they are, especially Akari, budgeting out what they can afford to buy for groceries. And I think that is super realistic of a family that is in poverty. And yet at the same time, they have such a strong sense of wanting to bring other people into their home they never ask ray to like bring over food or pay for dinner he can just come over like no questions asked the same thing with the example that you just gave of someji telling hina that she should go to whatever school she wants and they'll figure it out and it really is just nice to see a family that is struggling and has to live within its means but also still be so welcoming to others and that's not necessarily how every family has to be of course but i thought it was executed super well on the issue of loss, it's touched on at parts throughout the series. I do feel like that's one of the big sort of missing pieces for the show. I assume the manga might go into this more. I hope it does. But I feel like there has to be more exploration of what happened to the Kawamoto family before the series actually began. And that probably would give a lot more development to Akari specifically, also to Hina and the grandfather and just kind of fill out what I feel like I want to know more about. Anything else about the Kawamotos? Nope. All right. So I had... Same. Great family. Standout part of the show. All right. So I had a few other... I know we're older. (laughs) You're not satisfied with Akari? (laughs) I mean, I'll take Akari, but... They're all unattainable for you. Don't worry about it. (laughs) All right. So... I had a few uh, different side characters that I want to talk about because I think one of the strongest parts of this series, I feel like I've said that a lot. <laughs> so there are a lot of strong parts of the series. But one... I mean, you rated this a 10. This is, yeah, You're not going to be like the worst part of this series. <laughs> it, has a lot, it does a lot of different things very well. But one of the things it does really well is that it gives you really interesting side characters and actually develops them and often focuses on them for many episodes or even an arc at a time. So let's start with Nikaido and Shimada, which in my opinion are probably the two most important characters in terms of Rei's shogi life, which is why I've grouped them together. We'll start with Nikaido. Nikaido is Rei's self-proclaimed rival, as I mentioned earlier, and someone who eventually becomes his friend. 
And I think he's one of the main vehicles, along with the cats that you don't like, by which we understand the shogi matches that are being played. There are often matches in which he serves as basically a narrator for the audience to understand a little bit more about what is happening. What I think is more interesting about him is that he exemplifies what Ray doesn't have, which is a pure passion for shogi. And that leads to this symbiotic relationship where they inspire each other. Nikaido is striving super hard to keep up with Rei's level in Shogi and live up to the title of being his rival, even though he's fairly weak and sick. And Rei comes to see that work, how much Nikaido loves Shogi and grows because of it. And so I really liked the way that relationship developed. I think when I first saw Nikaido, I was like, what is he doing in the show? <laughs> but he really serves as a good friend to Ray and someone who I think pushes him in all the right directions, which Ray does for, for Nikaido as well. Yeah, I think it really is a turning point when Ray realizes how much work Nikaido is putting in. It's not something that Ray realizes for a lot of his life that other players aren't just good, right? He laments the fact that so many other shogi players are just bad when he puts in not that much work to be this good. And another part of that is that he says that he doesn't even care about shogi. So why is it that these people that are so passionate about it aren't even good? So he doesn't relate to Nikaido initially. But when he sees how much work Nikaido is putting in, especially in those scenes where Nikaido is literally in the hospital with shogi practice books, when Ray realizes that, that really is a turning point in him starting to understand what it means to care about your profession and to actually throw yourself into your profession in a positive way. One scene that goes along with that, that it's one of my favorite Nikaido moments, is Nikaido is in Shimada's workshop. So he's like one of his apprentices, basically, and often refers to him as his big brother. And we talked about that match between Shimada and Rei, where Rei is so focused on revenge that he's not even looking at Shimada and eventually he, he you know, realizes his presence. It's revealed later that Nikaido basically told Shimada, like, I want you to absolutely fucking crush Rei. And at first you're like, all right, you're being kind of a dickhead. But <laughs> it really does serve exactly the purpose that Rei needs. He has such tunnel vision for this match with Goto and on top of it takes... So for granted, like you mentioned, his ability in Shogi, that it really is his match with Shimada and the way in which Nikaido drives Shimada to teach Rei a lesson in which he learns that, okay, he actually might need to work a little harder. He might need to reach out to other people and form relationships in Shogi to be able to achieve the things that he wants to do in the Shogi world. And that sort of shows, I think, that symbiotic relationship that Nikaido and, and Rei have. I love Shimada. Uh, sh sorry, Shimada. No, we're going to move on to Shimada, so go ahead. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Shimada was one of my favorite characters in the show, especially because of his arc of succumbing to the pressure put on him externally by the people in his hometown, having to live up to this title of genius shogi player in his hometown, right? That, that's also something that I think a lot of people can relate to. A lot of people from small towns, when they move out of that town, they hear this concept of you're the person leaving this town, like be representative of our town. And Shimada faces that. In his town, he was the big fish, right? But now in Tokyo, now in this giant area where there are so many other better players, Shimada struggles and he puts in so much work, even in spite of his own health issues. This guy has massive ulcers or like something else <laughs> is going on here and he is still struggling. And 
Ray coming to realize again how much work Shimada puts into it, the impact that this has on Shimada's own health, is a really transformative insight into his own relationship with Shogi. Yeah, I've fucking loved Shimada. I think he's one of the best side characters in the show. And that pressure of trying to live up to expectations in his hometown is such a good arc in the show. So if you remember, his semifinal matchup with Ray ends in him actually beating Ray and facing off against Goto in the final, who he then also beats. And the winner of this Shishio tournament gets to play basically this seven match series or some number series with the Majin, who's like the top ranked player. The god. The god, yeah. We'll talk about him in a second. And all Shimada wants to do is he's not even like, obviously he wants to win, but he's not even that focused on beating someone who is clearly a superior player to him. All he wants to do is make it to like the fifth or sixth match. I can't remember which one because that match is hosted in his hometown. And all he wants to do is play the Majin in his hometown and basically come home to this like triumphant return of, I did it. I'm playing against the best player in the world. I've pushed him to a pretty respectable number of games and like i made it i'm here and he doesn't get there and then they go back to his hometown so ray and nikaido and shimada go back to his hometown and you meet the people in his hometown and there's this really just heartwarming development of him feeling just sad that he wasn't able to live up to their expectations and all these like old men that he used to like teach how to play shogi just reaffirming that they're proud of him regardless of what he does and just that whole arc is just so well done again with amazing imagery. And it's one of the reasons why Shimada, I think, is one of the best side characters on top of the way in which he introduces Rei to other people that he can lean on in the world of Shogi. Shimada also has other matches in season two, but I think by far the standout is him in that arc in season one. I want him to be my own chan <laughs> Same. <laughs> All right, let's talk a little bit about the Majin. So Soya is the Shogi player who holds the title of Majin. He became the youngest ever Majin after being a middle school prodigy, much like Rei. And I think Soya is particularly interesting because of the way he's held up as a god in the Shogi world and serves as a mirror for Rei and, of course, other characters as well to compare themselves against. We really see him in two arcs. So the first is in his title series with Shimada that I just mentioned, where we're really taking Shimada's perspective and feeding into this image of this absolute master of Shogi. We get a little bit of a crack into that when we see how absent-minded this guy is through Ray's perspective. An example of that being when they have this uh, meeting in the rain in this garden outside right before one of the matches in the title series where Ray is just like trying to go get some fresh air and then he's like, oh fuck, the god of Shogi is like right there. And then like the uh, Shogi Association president <laughs> runs after him and he's like, what are you doing standing in the rain? There are all these like people waiting to interview you and like press and stuff. Like we need to get you back inside. And he's like, okay, yeah. And then the second arc that we really get to spend time with the Majin in is in season two. It's called White Storm. And that's in the promotional match where Rey and the Majin actually play each other. And here, those cracks open up even further, where we learn that he has some kind of intermittent hearing loss, along with a lot of loneliness that comes with being at the top of any individual sport. And I think it's particularly an interesting time for Rey to play him because 
he can realize that he has grown, he himself has grown so much and feels like he's trending in almost the opposite direction that the Majin is going in. And so they also, much like Rey and Nikaido, have this sort of mirrored relationship with each other. I think the Bajin and Rey, you could say the same thing for. Yeah, I think it's an interesting dichotomy that they actually create within the show because the Majin gives this feeling that he may just be a savant and is unable to form strong relationships with the people around him. I mean, the scene in the rain was a really good example because it just shows how isolated he is, how lonely he is, and how other people have to essentially corral him. But Ray, organically, with the help of the Kawamoto sisters and with the help of Nikaido, is deepening his own relationships in a way that it seems like the Majin can't or won't or just doesn't care about. And so the way that it presents them kind of going along different paths now, I think has yet to still be fully flushed out, but it, it is very interesting to see how that's going to actually end. Yeah, I do wonder if this will take a little bit more of the traditional sports route of course we already said it's not sports anime but this will take the route of giving us some actual title match between ray and the majin at some point in the future or if all we're gonna get is the promotional match and maybe some kind of interaction another way i would be really interested in seeing if that's gonna happen or not yeah i don't know it might be that ray at some point just dropped shogi i mean could you see that as a possible ending definitely I could definitely see it. I do think it's integral to the show and there are so many characters revolving around it. I would see it. It'd be kind of hard to see it completely cut out, but it could happen. I could definitely see it as a a thing where Ray kind of fully casts off his previous emotional trauma and Shogi, because it was so integral in developing that emotional trauma, it it could be a nice moment for him to finally cast that free and move, take a step forward. Yeah. I wonder how that would feel in terms of if it would feel contradictory to his relationship with Shogi actually improving and leading him to a better place on top of his relationships with the Kawamotos and and other people, and if that would really feel like a send-off or if it would feel sort of at odds with how the show has developed that. All right, so the last character I wanted to talk about, and then we'll do a quick-fire round of a few others, is Yanagihara. Do you remember who Yanagihara is? See that old motherfucker? Yes. He is the oldest active professional shogi player who's like really not in the show that much. But somehow he manages to have one of the most memorable arcs of the series in Burnt Field. So we meet him through the Kisho Championship, which he's playing against Shimada. This is one of those other matches that Shimada is featured in in the second season. And we really enter this arc rooting for Shimada to continue sort of his backstory of making his town proud he's never won a title before so this is a big deal we spent a lot of time with shimada we want him to do well then we're introduced to his opponent yanagihara who recalls this burnt field analogy used by one of his friends gen who's recently lost his job as a reporter and gen says quote without my work what am i and that resonates super deeply with him as shogi is the last thing that yanagihara has in his life to keep him fighting and drives him forward And the way this is animated is an absolute standout of the many ways the series drives home the psyche of its characters. And at the end of the day, Yanagihara is standing alone, basically at the end of his life, in the middle of that burnt field. And the only thing he can do is, as he says, burn with it, as he has already dedicated his entire life to chasing dreams in the world of Shogi. I think a lot of people often 
cite this as a super memorable arc in the series. And I find that really interesting because I think it's exceptional. And I also still remember it to this day, but it's not something I can personally relate to. Like I'm not old and I'm not reflecting on, <laughs> and I'm not reflecting Damn, on <laughs> my entire life having been dedicated to a very specific, you know, piece of work that I want to continually improve upon and reach some goal over the course of my life. How did you feel about this? Did it resonate with you? Do you remember this arc at all? I do. And I think the part that I could relate with is I mean, I don't want to get old. I fucking hate the thought of being old. And so and that's all relative, though. Um, I don't know what our listener demographics are. But, um, <laughs> I think that's something that I'm definitely afraid of is 30 or 40 years down the line thinking to myself, I regret having gone down this path and I regret doing these things for the majority of my life. Like we're already doing a long path, yep. making little money and doing work that no one will ever notice. Yeah, exactly. That's why and, we have an and, anime podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I think about that a lot already now, which is why I think to myself, if in 40 years down the line, if I still feel this way, would it have been worth it? And so I think Yanagihara's arc here really brought that forward to me again. What are we going to feel when we're nearing the end of our lives? What are we going to feel? Would it all have been worth it? And Yanagihara, I think, got to that point, that kind of cusp of was it worth it? And I don't think we have a good answer to that from his arc, but I think it was still very poignant to be able to say, yeah. like, this is an important question for us to all ask ourselves. Are we living in a way that when at the end of our lives we look back, are we going to be happy? Yeah, that's really good analysis. I think that really is what the show is trying to get across. And the answer that Yanagihara has is there's nothing else I can do. I've already committed to this and all I can do is burn with this life that I've already created for myself and keep going in the direction that I am. But I think it's worth it for all of us to think about if that kind of commitment is what we want or if we feel like we are similarly burning away in a field doing the same thing every day. So I think this is one of those arcs that if I revisit, like when I'm having a midlife crisis in 20 years... <laughs> probably relate to a lot more. <laughs> All right. So those were the characters I had in-depth stuff on, but I wanted to rapid fire a few of the other characters and just give me uh, your quick thoughts on them. So the first are Kyoko and Goto, which we have not talked about at all, minus talking about Goto as sort of this driver for Ray's revenge in uh, this tournament in season one. Kyoko, we also mentioned a bit talking about his adoptive family. And they are having this relationship where Goto's cheating on his wife with her and she's like chasing after him and he's basically absolutely just using her when he wants to and casting her aside when he's has no use for her really. So what did you think of these two characters? I'm going to start with Kyoko so I don't pop off right now. <laughs> but Kyoko, I don't want to reduce her role in the show. I think she was one of the most central characters in the show. And this is where I, after I finished the first season, I was so ambivalent about Kyoko as a character because she is integral to Ray's state of mind at the outset of the show. She is the one who is the closest thing we have to an antagonist within the show. Because 
Initially, when Ray entered the adoptive household, she really began to have her own emotional crisis because she she wanted a relationship with her father and Ray came in between that. And as a result of that, there was really a downward spiral within Kyoko's own mental state where eventually the father was like, you should just quit Shogi. You're not good enough to actually play on a national stage. And then she essentially rebelled as a result of that. And a part of that rebellion is her wanting to seek revenge on Ray. And therefore, a lot of Ray's feelings about his own family, the reason that he moved out is because he feels this regret of not being able to form a relationship with his sister. And so back in the present, where Ray is depressed and unable to form these bonds, we see Kyoko appear again near the end of season one, right? We see this weird relationship between the two where she kind of wants to form a relationship with him now, but at the same time is still trying to destroy him. And it's like, what is your relationship with him? And and, and I think... On one hand, I want to say I felt very ambivalent about that because I was like, is this intentional? Is this character flawed intentionally? And on the other hand, I can see how this character is very human. Having all of this emotional trauma and trying to survive through that and trying to overcome that and failing to overcome that. What did you feel about her attempts to actually start forming a relationship with Ray again? I think the last thing that you said is mostly how I feel about Kyoko. I don't think she has as clean of an arc or progression as many of the other characters in the show do, but she feels very human. She's had a fucked up childhood, and as a result of it, she's pretty fucked up herself in all the ways that she operates. And you highlighted the sort of weird relationship that she has with Ray, which sounds kind of vague, but it is the best way to put it on the one hand i think she relates to him because if anybody else listening to this has siblings you know that growing up in the same household there are some things that only your sibling will understand and that no one else will get and so even if you're not on good terms with your sibling there's still some kind of shared connection there and i think that's sort of what she is trying to latch onto in many of the super interesting actually conversations she has with Ray in season one, like when she stays over at his apartment. At the same time, obviously, she's kind of a fucking bitch. Like, <laughs> she's, you know, talking shit about her relationship with Goto and how that's going to impact Ray. Like you mentioned, she has this super mean line when she finds out that he's been going over to the Kawamoto's and she's like oh are you did you find a new family to basically like wreck apart the same way you did to mine and just blaming him for all of the trauma that has been caused in her childhood and in her family so it's sort of like a mess of emotions with Kyoko but I think that's maybe the point like there isn't anything clean there's just a lot of trauma and a lot of stuff she probably needs to work on and a lot of stuff that she makes Ray think about in relationship to his childhood. And I think she feels very human in that way, like you said. Yeah, this is one of the things that, <laughs> like I said, after I finished season one, I really had to give the show a reckoning, especially because of the the development we got of Kyoko. I just, I, I think there's room for so much more development. It really feels like that character kind of just got thrown aside in seasons one and two like we know how she's pivotal for ray's emotional state but i don't know a lot about her i don't know if her own emotional 
crisis is ever resolved? What happens to her after she's abandoned by Goto? These are all just open questions, and I really wish I had more answers there. Obligatory fuck Goto. That's probably all we should say. Fuck that guy. What is wrong? <sighs> yeah, I, I mean, not, I can't start here. The I, thing I, is, there are people like that, and like way more than you think. So yeah. that's pretty much all there is I, to say. I, He's a fucking I, I shit completely bag. understand that. <laughs> yeah, he is the absolute fucking scum of the earth. So let's just leave it at let's that. Let's leave it at that. The other two characters that I think are worth mentioning quickly are Takashi and Doguchi. Takashi is Rei's teacher, who's just like a really nice support system character for Rei. Clearly is very invested in his shogi life as a big shogi fan, but also looks out for him at school, making sure he can do his assignments and still graduate and all that kind of stuff. Noguchi is a fucking mustache man who is president of the science club at school. And I really do actually love how that shogi science club comes together. I did not expect that to be the focus of the first episode of season two. When I finished season one, I was like, it's either gonna we're gonna go into like another shogi arc, we're gonna focus more on the Kawamoto's, we're gonna dive deeper into how Ray's getting better. And the first thing the show does is say, now nah, we set up a Shosai club. But that really does go to show at the end of that episode how Ray is monologuing about how thankful he is that he can actually just do something normal at school. He's at a club and he has friends and they're doing something fun and he's laughing after school. That's something that in season one would have been just unthinkable. I think these two characters provide a very nice school environment to showcase how much Rey has started to really rely on other people. I agree. I think my most memorable moment from the show side club is that uh, noodle slide they built. Oh yeah, the noodle and slide. Momo just standing at the bottom of that. <laughs> When Ray invites the Kawamoto's and yeah. they're just like, holy shit. Also when he... Food on when, slide. <laughs> yeah, true. Also when they made in that first episode they of season two, they make like the little fizzy uh, sweets and then he like brings them home to the Kawamoto's, which is also very cute that his first thought is to share it with them. And Momo just pops one in and she's like, fizzy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that shit's lit. It's great. Oh, oh man. All right, uh, I think that's most of the side characters. There's a bunch of other ones that we could talk about, like Tatsuyuki is the other main shogi player who <laughs> is the one who's in the other semifinal matchup with Goto in season one. And he's always like, Ray, why are you not paying attention to me? Like, I am also in this tournament and I literally <laughs> hang out with you every day. And <laughs> I think he like adopts a cat at one point. Like, <laughs> there's like a whole episode focused on him. <laughs> and <laughs> there's this amazing scene where he wakes up in the morning before a match and it's like, the life of a shogi player and he like gets up and he's like opens his mini fridge and like takes out some really shitty breakfast while like studying shogi it's great like that stuff is just excellent all right i think that's it on the characters i wanted to wrap up with some final thoughts on the series so i had two categories of questions the first is if there's any sort of take-home message any broad way in which the show has impacted you personally or specifically characters that you related to and the second was, how do you feel about prospects for season three? And where would you expect for the story to go after where uh, season two ended? I know you won't read the manga, so I won't even ask about that. Yeah, I won't read the manga. I think the way that it's impacted me personally, 
In season one, it was really the Kawamoto's that stood out to me. And I understand Ray is the primary focus of the show and his depression is one of the primary focuses of the show. But as I said, I stuck around to watch the relationship with the Kawamoto's develop and those slice of life feel scenes, the warmth of those scenes. It was those scenes that really made me think a lot more about my own family and my relationship with my family and how I should value that time that we have together. Sharing the little time that we have together before some type of tragedy strikes or, you know, something happens, which is, I mean, kind of sad to think about. But again, the happiness in the moments they shared together was very, very nice to see on screen. In season two, it was really the bullying arc that stood out to me. I mean, this is why season two is a 10 out of 10, because as I said, this is something that I have never seen done in anime, even close to this level. I think we all say that if we were put in the same situation, we would do the same thing. But saying that is a lot easier than actually being there and doing it. And doing what Hina did is something that I think so many of us in our own childhoods failed to do. We either participated in bullying or were witnesses to it and didn't stand up. And those moments where I saw Hina stand up, the emotional consequences she faced of her actions really hit home. It made me think a lot about my own childhood and how I want to be a better person moving forward, trying to be this just ethical person, no matter the consequences. Because as this show clarified, if you have the right relationships around you and you know the right people, things will work out because it's the people that are close to you that matter. Yeah, really well said. I think for me, anime peaked, bro. <laughs> it peaked and it's ne it's never getting this good again. I mean, in, in seriousness, I love everything about this show. I think from the writing to the adaptation to the way it uses monologue and imagery to the themes that it explores to the way it feels like actual people's lives that I am watching on screen. I didn't necessarily relate exactly to the way in which Ray is depressed or the way in which Hina was bullied, but those things still hit so hard for me because of the way I was invested in the characters, the way I related to the comedy, the way in which the show made me feel all the emotions that the characters are feeling in a way that no other show I think ever has. It's an absolute masterpiece. If you haven't seen it, you should go watch it. As for season three, the situation at Shaft is really bad right now. I am sort of hopeful that it might get better at Shaft and that with the release of the manga in the United States, there might be some chance for season three. I mean, we did get the announcement for the Madoka Magica sequel movie to Rebellion. So there's a little bit of steam picking up at Shaft, maybe, I hope, but I don't know if it'll happen. I will for sure read the manga because I need the rest of what is available. And it's definitely a story that I want to finish. I'm really just waiting for the official release. And I expect to get a lot more of uh, Hina and Rei development. I would expect to hopefully get a little bit more about Kyoko if possible. Definitely get a lot more about the Kamoto backstory. And yeah, the rest of the usual kind of character development around Shogi that the show excels at. Unfortunately, those are the breaks with anime, is That's... that we never know what's going to end up coming out. Yeah, it's really sad, but at least we have the manga and that will probably get finished, so I will at least read that. All right, any other... It's fine, we have Shikamori to carry us through. <sighs> why, why? 
<laughs> we're about to sign off and just be happy talking about how much of a masterpiece this series is. And then you're like, hey, here's shit seasonal anime. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to say about the series before we sign off? I don't know why you're still here listening to this if you haven't seen it, but if you haven't seen it, go watch this literally immediately. Um, actually, you know, that's actually not true. I think <laughs> this is one of those shows where if you feel like you're not in the right mental space to watch this show, it can be sometimes hard to watch. So maybe wait for the right mental space considering you know what the themes are. Yep. But otherwise, this is truly a 10 out of 10. This is a masterpiece. I know we say that maybe too often on this show because we do try and review the things that are meaningful to us, which is probably why we should probably start reviewing some shit things at some point <laughs> in the future. <laughs> We're but this doing that, truly did stand out. <laughs> this truly did stand out. It's a special series. It truly is. All right. I think that's it from us. Uh... <laughs> you don't remember the fucking outro, do you? <laughs> Please subscribe. <laughs> Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. If you use Apple Podcasts, uh, it would mean a lot to us if you left us a five-star rating and a review. And actually, I think very recently, I saw that Spotify also has a review system for podcasts. If you could leave a five-star rating there as well, that would be super helpful for the show. Otherwise, check us out on our website, bakabanter.com. Follow us on Twitter. Interact with us there at bakabanterpod. Our next episode, we are going to be talking about Studio Trigger. So stay tuned for that. Coming out hopefully in two weeks. And that's been it from us. We've been the Baka Banter Lads. And we'll catch you all in the next one. Bye.